Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Captain Edward J. Smith lived a sailor's life and commanded some of the largest vessels in world history, but his reputation would be forever remembered as the man that piloted Titanic. Although many believe that his actions led to the massive ship's 1912 sinking and the deaths of over 1,500 souls, many speculate as to his condition to even pilot the vessel to begin with. Just one year before Titanic made history, Smith faltered as captain of its sister ship Olympic and swore that after Titanic's first voyages he would retire for good. On this episode, we discuss Captain Edward J. Smith, RMS Titanic. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 4 of the series, we're discussing game changers, who they are, what they did, and why they still matter. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast, at my author's website, BradyKreitzer.com, for news, appearances, and events. You can visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Kreitzer, and of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. On today's episode, we're going to look at, I think, one of the more compelling subjects of the season, certainly something that really made me th- think twice when I first received the email. We're going to look at a figure that almost all of you know about even though you know very little about him. I know I certainly didn't before this, but I did know a great deal about the events surrounding his life and, more importantly, surrounding his death. I'm talking about Edward Smith, captain of the RMS Titanic. Now, a couple things as we started. I received an email from a young woman named Rebecca in the UK. She wrote in the email that in her city, Litchfield, there stood a statue of the man, Edward Smith. She knew him as the captain of the Titanic. Now, she didn't know a lot about him. She did know, of course, he was at the helm the night of the great disaster, April 14th of 1912. But she wondered why a person like that would have a statue. And it really got me thinking, what did I know about the Titanic? I mean, Titanic is one of the most fascinating subjects uh, in all of history, in terms of our modern conception of popular history. And the film and the song and all of that had a lot to do with it. But we always keep coming back to Titanic. And the question is why. I mean, as historians, we tend to sort of ignore it in a way. What does it really mean? Why is it important? Well, it seemed like a very isolated incident. I mean, as professional historians, when we look at subjects that we want to study. The Titanic doesn't necessarily jump off the page for us. And there's a few reasons for it. We like to look at things that reveal something greater about the time period in which they occur. Context is everything for us. And from our vantage point, in many ways, the Titanic is sort of a one-off. It's sort of an isolated incident. 
I mean, yes, you have a massive loss of life, many of which uh, had a great deal to do with social hierarchy, socioeconomic factors, things like that. We'll talk about that. But we tend to stay away from it just because it doesn't necessarily have a deeper meaning. I mean, our popular conception of Titanic and the sinking of Titanic plays into a lot of themes, almost dramatic themes. This idea of the unsinkable ship, this idea of the very poor suffering while the very wealthy survive, maybe this idea that rich and poor alike will die on this vessel, sort of nature being the great equalizer when it's all said and done. I mean, there's a lot there to that. I'll admit it's very fascinating. Uh, but as far as real, deeper meaning of history, we struggle with that. We struggle with that. So it's why I never really considered a Titanic subject as appropriate for this season, but this season's all about individual achievement. This season's all about game-changing people. And Edward Smith, captain of the Titanic, I think is an interesting choice. Now, when Rebecca emailed me, she, again, she sees this statue in a park in her home city. It does make you question things like historical memory. I mean, from the American perspective, Edward Smith could be viewed as a dunce. Uh, he could be viewed as almost maybe culpable for the sinking of Titanic. If you understand the sinking itself, that really isn't the case. We could view him as a picture of hubris. We could view him as someone who uh, put his own ambitions ahead of the good of the ship. But in the UK, in England, uh, you don't have that at all. I mean, you see a very different picture of what Titanic was uh, and who Edward Smith was. I mean, in Ireland, the Irish will say uh, that Titanic was their ship. It was built by Irishmen. Uh, the British will say it was spearheaded by Edward Smith, a, a real Brit in the truest sense of the word, and we'll talk about him. But it's an interesting subject, and again, it kind of transcends barriers for us. So we will talk about Titanic this episode as a backdrop to Edward Smith's life. Because again, the, the most experience that I think the majority of us have with him uh, is the actor that portrayed him in the 1997 film, James Cameron's Titanic. Now in preparation for this, I'll admit, part of my research, and it can be fun at times, was to watch that movie. I'm a child of the 90s, so to speak. I wasn't born in the 90s, but I really kind of grew up in the 90s. Uh, and Titanic holds a special place in my heart just because the time period in which it came out. So I enjoy watching those movies. Uh, and I have a couple observations just to start. You might fast forward if you want, uh, but I think it's worth noting. First of all, Rose uh, is like, you know, Kate Winslet. Uh, Rose is like the worst person that's ever lived. You know, the more I watch that film, the more I wish that she had actually gone down on that ship. And I'll tell you why. Uh, number one, I mean, think about what she's doing, okay? Uh, she meets Leonardo DiCaprio and knows him for a grand total of maybe two days at the most. Uh, the ship goes down, and he effectively saves her life. He puts her on this piece of wood, it floats. Uh, and the more I watch the film, the more I see that there's probably plenty of room on that piece of wood for him. Uh, but she leaves him in the water, you know, to freeze to death, uh, along with about 1,500 other people. I keep watching and I see more problems with the character of Rose. She tells Jack, I'll never let go. And then she literally, two seconds later, lets go and his body descends into the abyss. But even more than that, talk about, again, Rose later in life. She marries some other guy. She's 100, I think they say in the film. Uh, she spends, what, 60, maybe 70 years with this new husband. She has a family with this new husband. And when she dies, she doesn't go see him. 
I mean, think about it. Rose spends 70 years with another man, has a whole life, a whole family, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. She dies in the film, and the first person she goes to visit is not her late husband, who's probably waiting for her on the other side, but Jack, this, what, 19-year-old dude she knew for two days whenever she was 17. I mean, that's pretty messed up, right? If you think about it. And I could go on and on about this, but again, the more I watch it, the more I kind of wish that she had gone down with the ship. Never mind the fact that in her possession her entire life, she owns a piece of jewelry that's, you know, by Bill Paxton's estimation, worth an untold fortune. Millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And rather than giving it to her own children so they can have a better life, she drops it in the water and it disappears. Why does she do it? I don't know. Jack, Leonardo DiCaprio, had nothing to do with the diamond, so dropping in the ocean, it's not like he gave it to her. Uh, it's just one of the many reasons that I think she's a despicable person. And again, uh, not a very sympathetic character. But, as we say, I digress. Um, what a great film, Titanic. Uh, at any rate, a lot of issues with it, but it was a labor of love, there's no doubt. Uh, really gave you a sense of it. You know, there was a time in the history of, of this discussion of Titanic, whenever people didn't know what the ship looked like, and I'm talking about till the 1980s. In the 1980s, an under, underwater uh, explorer named Bob Ballard discovered Titanic for the first time. And he found Titanic was split in half, two different parts. And a lot of people that were very seriously engaged in the Titanic community uh, heard eyewitness testimony that the boat did split in half, and they didn't believe it. I mean, they literally didn't believe it. So people were shocked to see this boat in two parts. I saw a clip, which still blows me away, uh, in the 1970s, of a Titanic survivor, an elderly woman, giving her account of the sinking of Titanic. And she talked about the fact that the boat split in half. The director of that event, again, a person who's a Titanic historian, took the microphone off of her and reiterated that the boat didn't actually split. This woman's confused. Uh, she just saw something that she thought was a split. But just a reminder, it didn't happen. I mean, if I was that woman, I would have some choice words for that guy. Were you there? You know, go pound salt. At any rate, uh, enough of this. Uh, we want to know about who this captain of Titanic is. Put a little bit of information to him, a little bit of name to him. Edward Smith. He's 62 years old whenever he takes Titanic out. But that wasn't his first rodeo. I mean, I want you to think about it. Titanic was the largest man-made moving object ever built. She weighed 52,000 tons. Insane. She was almost 900 feet long. Her height, 175 feet. Nine decks. I mean, incredible stuff, right? I mean, you're talking about one of the most amazing achievements in human history. It was just a ship, there's no doubt, but it's a ship that sinks. So I think we have in our mind, that sort of combination of its immense size uh, and its, and its again, untimely fate, sort of a reminder of why we still care about it. But I'll also keep in mind, if you go on modern cruise ships today, besides the fact that you have this expanding waistline when you're done with it, um, those are much bigger than Titanic ever was. That doesn't minimize this, but I do want you to keep that in mind uh, for some perspective. Now, let's talk a little bit about Edward Smith. Again, game changers. Is he a game changer? I don't know. I don't know. But I think he's an interesting character. Uh, and I think Rebecca's email is going to go a long way to sort of revealing a little more about him and why we should even care. So let's talk about him. Edward Smith is born uh, in Staffordshire, England. 
Uh, but he's not born to a wealthy family. Now, one of the things I love about this, the year's 1850, is that you're really beginning to see by 1850 the industrial world changing a very old European world. I mean, when you're dealing with a man like Edward Smith, again, born 1850, he's not born to a wealthy lord. He's not born the son of some industrialist. He's born to a relatively poor family. And for most of the history of the Western world, and certainly the history of England to this point, if you're born poor, you're typically dying poor. I mean, that's sort of the problem with the feudal society. But by 1850, you're seeing the industrial world fundamentally changing what it means to be a Briton. And the idea that you can rise from the bottom and make your way to the top uh, is a very impressive one. Now, whenever Smith turns 13... Uh, he leaves his primary school and begins working at a forge. I mean, this is heavy, awful work. But in 1867, at 17, again, coming into his own as a man, he follows in the footsteps of his brother, and his brother goes to Liverpool. Now, when you go to Liverpool in England in 1870, for example, there's really one thing on your mind. I mean, you don't go to Liverpool to be a farmer. You don't go to Liverpool to be a shopkeeper. You go to Liverpool to either build giant ships or sail them. I mean, it's that simple. And it's one of these interesting ideas that if he would have stayed behind in Staffordshire where he's born, I think his life is pretty well planned out. But to join something like a sailing fleet brings whole new possibilities for you. And this is going to be true forever. I mean, it's always been true. As long as there's been navies, uh, this idea's been there. But the idea is you escape the bounds of your former life. And you hit the high seas. And you can go anywhere and do anything. Now, I really think the time in which Smith was born and the lifestyle he chooses, a life at sea, a maritime life, is going to play a long way into sort of establishing how he views the world. Again, he comes from humble beginnings. I'm not going to say he rises to extraordinary prominence, but hey, we're making a podcast about him. Now, one of the real attractions I have to Smith, whenever we look at this, uh, is again where he comes from and how he rises the ranks, because almost every other episode we deal with, we're dealing with some prince or some aristocratic child uh, breaking free from the bonds of their parents and setting off on their own. But they always kind of begin uh, with a leg up. They always kind of begin with a head start over the average person. But Edward Smith, and at the time you know, his friends would call him Ted Smith, he didn't have that. I mean, he just didn't have that. His very first job was in Liverpool. He was an apprentice on a ship called the Senator Weber. Uh, owned by a very small company out of Liverpool, A. Gibson and Company. I mean, that's nothing major. You're not going to make history doing that. But you are integrating yourself into a very clear economic world uh, that functions for the British Empire. In 1880, however, at the age of 30, we really start to see his life and career take off. He's hired by a new company, the White Star Line. And the White Star Line, to put it mildly, uh, is one of, if not the most famous uh, sailing fleets in the world. I mean, when you think about being British in 1880 and being the largest empire in world history, and you think about traveling the world in luxury, you think about the White Star Line. I think that's really important. And that's where Edward Smith gets his next break. He becomes an officer on a ship called the SS Celtic. 
He makes some of his very first transatlantic voyages. He sails to New York City. He sails to Australia. He receives command of a ship called the Republic. By 1888, he's approaching 40 years old. He's really making a name for himself. And how do you make a name for yourself in this world? I mean, you're effectively sailing passenger vessels, cruise ships. You make the trips as painless as possible. The seas can be rocky. There's no doubt. The weather can be treacherous. Uh, how do you do that? Well, you kind of have to be invisible if you're a ship captain at this time. You're not going out and braving the elements in battle. You're avoiding icebergs. You're doing things like that. Most importantly, though, the passengers don't even know you're there. They have a luxurious time. They're eating. They're drinking. And when it's all said and done, if it's a nice smooth ride, you've done your job. So it's a little bit different than a military career. He doesn't have a military career. Not yet. But we'll begin to see that. In 1888, uh, he joins the Royal Navy Reserve. Uh, and after it, you'll see beside his name, comma, RNR, Royal Navy Reserve. And this is an interesting choice by Edward Smith. What it means is that in a time of war, even though he's been a commercial uh, captain his entire life, he can be called upon to serve the British Empire. The British Navy can literally bring him in. He's in the Royal Navy Reserve. It's difficult to say whether or not he did this for the prestige. I mean, let's face it, everybody wants more letters after their name. Or if he does it because he truly loves the Empire. I think we'll go with the latter. Uh, but he will be called upon for service uh, for an upcoming war that we may talk about in more detail in the future. In 1895, Smith will take over as the ship captain uh, of the Majestic. The Majestic is a very big... Uh, very prominent ship in the White Star Line. Not the biggest, but one of some prestige. And because he has the letters R&R &R after his name, he's called upon to serve in the Royal Navy. So what's going on? In 1895 in South Africa, you're beginning to see a war emerge. It's a war that is sort of a precursor in a lot of ways to World War I, because many of the great British commanders in World War I kind of cut their teeth in the 1890s in this war. It's called the Boer War, and it's in South Africa. Now, to make the Boer War very simple, this is how we can break it down. There are settlers in South Africa, white settlers, European settlers, who have spent generations there. They don't particularly like British uh, presence. They don't particularly like the British creating laws and administrating uh, over them. So they rebel, and this is effectively a colonial rebellion, the Boer War. There's a first Boer War and a second Boer War. The, the term Boer, B-O-E-R, is the term given to the South African settlers. But the important thing for us, and this is, again, me talking as an imperial historian, is that this is sort of par for the course for being an empire. I mean, being an empire has some some realities that goes along with it. And again, what is an empire, but spreading your way of life in a place where it's never been before and probably doesn't belong. Rebellion is a part of that. Now, the job of Edward Smith, this man we're talking about today, he's called upon again to serve the British Navy, is to join the fight. Now, let's face it, he's not like manning a machine gun, but he uses his vessel and he uses his title, RNR, Royal Navy Reserve, uh, to send troops back and forth from Britain to South Africa. And he does it very effectively. For his service in 1903, King Edward VII will give him something called the Transport Medal, uh, one of the high honors you can get for military service at sea in the British Empire. 
And again, we're seeing this story take on new levels, new elements, new layers, which is why I never really thought about this topic before. Uh, but I think it's worth noting these particulars, and it does, again, can be dry, but I do want to set up this man's background a bit to make what he does in April of 1912 on Titanic even more memorable for us. One of the things I really want to impress upon you, and this is true in this discussion of this topic, Edward Smith's life, it can be true of any historic topic, is that we know everything that we're talking about here. Smith's background, his achievements, is leading to one fateful night, the night of his death, in April of 1912. We know that. And I think what we're doing a bit, and we have to be careful of this, is front-loading our understanding of our topic based on that. I mean, it's one of the realities of history, as you know how it plays out. And again, this goes back to earlier podcasts this season, when we talked about the problems and the difficulties of gauging current events through a historical lens, because you don't know how it's going to play out. But we want to be careful not to minimize what Edward Smith does, based on the events of April of 1912 and the sinking of the Titanic. I mean, these are major achievements in his life, and he's on that ship, a historic ship, for a very important reason. The end of the Boer War and his return to civilian service is what I like to think of as a turning point, probably the most important pivotal turning point in Edward Smith's life. So 1904, make a mental note in your mind, he's 54 years old, is when everything begins to really break his way. He's given a title, more of a reputation, after the Boer War, as a captain who's, quote, safe. They call him a safe captain. That doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but in that industry, at that time, that's one of the greatest compliments you can achieve. Because remember, the ideal commercial ship captain is a person you feel like, as a passenger, you never need. But you know that he's there. I mean, if he's going to be dodging icebergs left and right in these dramatic moves, you're not going to make a great ship captain. If you've ever been on an airplane, you know what I'm talking about. The only thing you want on an airplane is a nice, smooth flight. At least I do. Some people have other interests. But for me, it's let's get there with as little stress as possible. And that's a heck of a job piloting. You know, you sort of shake the pilot's hand when you leave little tip of the cap. I don't know. At any rate, um, that's the world in which Edward Smith lives in. And the reputation as a safe captain is one that will allow him to be very successful now, 25 years roughly, into his sailing career. 1904 again is a big year. And there's a lot of reasons for this. But one of the reasons is the commands he's given are becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, if you're a wealthy person, let's say you want to travel from uh, the UK to it, to New York City, across the Atlantic, you don't want to travel on a medium-sized boat or a small ship. You want the largest and grandest ship. And for that reason, and because of his skills, Edward Smith is given those boats to sail. He gets a reputation. This is literally what people write about him. They call him the millionaire's captain. The millionaire's captain. Why? Because, again, in a world where you have this, what in America we call the gilded age, this sort of untold wealth, unchecked prosperity, endless money for the people at the very top, the industrial age types, those kind of sorts. I mean, that's what you want. You want the best. And many people began actually requesting that they would only sail under Edward Smith. There are literally examples of people very wealthy in London and very wealthy uh, in New York 
that would only sail if he was captain. That's a pretty stunning endorsement. I mean, again, if you think of this guy as the guy who crashed and sunk the unsinkable ship, you're going to miss a lot of this important stuff. But this is the world in which Edward Smith came from, and it's the reputation that he garnered. In 1904, he's given command of what we call uh, his first big ship. It's a ship we call the Baltic. And guess what? At the time, it was the largest ship on the planet Earth. The largest ship ever built, the Baltic. Edward Smith was called upon in 1904 to sail the largest ship in the world. That's a pretty big honor. And it's one that he'll take on time and time and time again. After sailing the Baltic for three years, he takes on a ship called the Adriatic. The Adriatic had replaced the Baltic as the largest ship in the world. So again, and you know where this story's going, right? What reputation is he getting? He's the guy who sails the very big ships with very little incident. Okay? It's not like he's plucked from the ether to sail Titanic. He knew it was the biggest ship he'd ever sailed, but he's been there and done that. And he probably thought at the time there were bigger ships coming as well. I mean, you have to understand the qualities of a sea captain at this level. And personally, their personality, uh, what they offer. I mean, you want a person who's steady, you want a person who's cool, you want a person who's calm. He has all of these things. Edward Smith is the perfect captain in a lot of ways. And we'll see that even as Titanic begins to sink eight years from the point we're discussing. But here first is something I think that's very important. Something that a lot of people overlook. If you study the life of Edward Smith, the year 1911 is a seminal event. But only in the greater context of what happens a year later do we get more, I guess, juice out of this story. So let's go to 1911 now. We left off in 1904. For the last seven years, Edward Smith has been one of the premier ship captains in the commercial sailing world. He's been given giant ship after giant ship, and he's been very successful with them. Actually, he's been 100% successful with them the entire time. But as always in the year 1911, we're getting into an age of bigger and better competition with all countries in the world. The British, no different. They rule the seas. They want to have the biggest and best. They create a new class of ships so big and so vast and so immense that even the Baltic, even the Adriatic, those ships we already talked about, would pale in comparison. We call this the Olympic class of ships, and the first ship is called the Olympic, the largest moving object ever built by man, the Olympic. And who do you think they bring in to sail it? Edward Smith. The journey of the Olympic, this is June of 1911, is going to be from Southampton in England to New York City, transatlantic. And for the most part, just like before, the maiden voyage of the Olympic goes off without a hitch until they get to dock. Again, this is less than a year before Titanic sinks. And I think it's a very illustrative point about Smith and his tendencies and a lot of the problems with this notion of the bigger the better when it comes to ships. Here's what we have. As the ship's pulling into harbor, into New York City, there's 12 smaller boats pulling it in. We call these tugboats. You've heard of that, right? The Why? Because they tug the big ships in. And what Smith did was something he's done before many, many times in terms of how he aided in the sort of arrival to the dock. 
However, this ship, the Olympics, much bigger than anything he's seen before. Maybe it handles a little bit differently. I mean, Smith is good at handling big ships, but maybe this one's a slightly different. What happens? One of the tugboats, again, there's 12, actually gets sucked underneath the Olympic. Now there's a panic on board, because the people in that boat are very likely going to die if they don't get out. Smith takes some evasive actions, the uh, tugboat's able to slip back out, and gets to shore. But that's a serious issue. I mean, to this point, Smith has never slipped up yet in his life. Civilian service, military service. And here we are, less than a year from the sinking of Titanic. The biggest ship in the world, and you have this one tiny mishap. Now, a tiny mishap it may be, but when you're dealing with new technology and the world is watching, again, it seems like every year the ships get bigger, small matters can become very big. And even though this one doesn't seem very big at the time, in about a year, everyone's going to call back to it. That's an interesting little episode, but it is nothing, and I mean nothing compared to what happens three months later. Remember, Smith is still the commander of the Olympic, the biggest ship in the world at the time. While the Olympic is sailing, there's a bigger ship being built. There's always a bigger ship. As Qui-Gon Jinn says in The Phantom Menace, there's always a bigger fish. But at any rate, again, different podcast. The Titanic's being built. And the Olympic's still sailing. Now, the people in the helm of the White Star Line did have some reservations about the Olympic. Because of the, again, circumstances we just talked about. It was relatively mild. No one died. The, the problem was minimal. But in September of 1911, now just only a handful of months before Titanic, eight months before Titanic launches, you see a much bigger problem occur. In September of 1911, the Olympic is again leaving the UK for a transatlantic voyage to the United States of America, New York City. As it's traveling in the Atlantic Ocean, it collides with the HMS Hawk. This is a uh, military ship, a military ship in the British Navy. The HMS Hawk will hit the side of the Olympic, and its prow, that's the very front end of its bow, the front of the boat, is clipped off. I mean, you know, this is where... To bring back the fictional movie, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet stand with their arms in the air. I'm flying, Jack. Right? That's wiped out. Now, that would have been a heck of a twist in the movie, right, if uh, they're taken with it. But at any rate, uh, the prowl of this HMS Hawk is knocked off. And this is a major incident for the White Star Line. Because, again, when you're a passenger vessel, if you're not safe, then you're nothing. And newspapers around the country and around the world publish this. Collision at Sea. Who was at the helm of the Olympic? Edward Smith. Now, the ship was able to turn around and go back to the UK, but not without some serious damage done. The two front compartments of the Olympic were completely filled with water. One of its propellers was badly bent to the point where it wouldn't spin anymore. Despite all that damage, think of this, despite all that damage, that ship was able to turn around, big ship, and get back to its home port. All of this is going to become very eerie as we move forward. Now, because that happened, the Olympic, the premier ocean liner in the world at the time, again, until Titanic was finished, was too damaged to sail. And when that ship is too damaged to sail, the White Star Line, the line that owns it, is losing a ton of money. So one of the things they have to do to help rebuild the ship, because it's not sailing, is take supplies and take manpower, 
and take new technology that was destined for Titanic and put it toward the Olympic. Now, all the while, these desperate repairs are going on at dock. Again, money's being lost. Shareholders are losing money. It's a bad time if you are the White Star Line. People are asking questions. How safe is it to travel in these big ships? And who was piloting the ship at the time? It was Edward Smith. Because of the repairs needed on the Olympic, the Titanic was delayed. The Olympic will take off a few months later, February of 1912, and its propeller will literally break off on its return voyage. Who's at the helm? Edward Smith. So the ship has to come back to port with one good propeller, one bad propeller, and create repairs again. Now, I want you to think of this. And again, how do they do it? They take supplies away from Titanic. We could play the what-if game for a long time here, but this is one that I think is very interesting. Edward Smith is at the helm of these ships both times. Of this ship, both times incidents occur. In the same year, 1911, September, it crashes into the HMS Hawk. Just a short time later, February of 1912, so within about a seven-month span. The propeller falls off shortly after it leaves. I mean, these are major problems. And again, when the standard you use is safety, and again, not knowing the captain's there because you're on a luxury vessel, none of that adds up to success. It just doesn't. But all of this leads to this really sort of compelling narrative. I mean, think about this. Titanic was supposed to launch in March of 1912, just two months after Olympic's return voyage. And because the Olympic is damaged yet again... Uh, the Titanic has to be delayed until April. So think of that. If Titanic leaves a day later than it did, maybe we have a very different story. Maybe we never even hear about the Titanic in the modern age. I mean, how many of you knew about the Baltic or the Adriatic or the Olympic? These were all the biggest ships in the world at their time. The only reason we know about Titanic is because it sunk. Now, if Edward Smith doesn't have those difficulties on the Olympic in 1911 and 1912, and Titanic launches on time. We probably never hear of this ship again in the 21st century. But those delays all add up to the result we all know that's coming. I mean, it's kind of spooky, and you can do that with anything, by the way. I'm not trying to say it was some conspiracy or it was destiny. I mean, that just happens. These kind of delays happen all the time, but it does kind of lend a little bit of mystique to the sinking of the Titanic, I think. And again, it's why we still think it's so interesting today. Now we get to the really great part. Now we get to um, the Leonardo DiCaprio, the Kate Winslet. Now we get to uh, Celine Dion and all of that, right? I bet you thought you were going to hear that music in this podcast. We don't have that kind of money. But at any rate, um, so here's what we have. April of 1912, Titanic's about to launch. Edward Smith, Ted Smith lifelong seaman, is announced as the man who will helm the largest ship ever built. 175 feet tall, almost 900 feet long, over 2,200 people on board. Smith just had a pretty rough six or seven months. I mean, you had two major incidents on the Olympic uh, in a matter of, again, uh, half a year. That's not really building a lot of faith for the millionaire's captain. But newspapers will report, newspapers will report, and Smith will say this, uh, that after Titanic's maiden voyage, he may retire. This is like his way of going out with a bang. Little does he know how real that will be. Some say he'll wait until Titanic is replaced by a much larger ship, which they're building uh, in Ireland as well. 
At any rate, doesn't matter. Because at 11.40pm on April 14th, 1912, Titanic strikes an iceberg. Now you guys know the story. You've seen the movie, you've seen the images, there's tons of great documentaries out there, there's a lot of really great resources out there. Titanic's going to sink. The collision on the side of the ship uh, is not as big as we think. Uh, it's about three square feet tall. It's about 11 square feet long. Um, a minor gash, but when you're a ship that big in the ocean, the ocean takes command pretty fast. Five compartments are filled in Titanic. It could have survived with four, but not five. The ship starts to sink. Now, a couple things about Smith at this point I think it's worth noting. Smith knew... There were only enough lifeboats for about half the people on board. Again, this is sort of cliche, sort of trite, because the movie goes over this, but that's true. And he knew that on board, about half the people on the ship would die. So he made concerted efforts to keep calm, we know this, and get the women and children on boats first. Now what the film Titanic doesn't show you, and I am going to read this, because I think it's important, uh, are the primary accounts of the sinking of the ship. Now, the primary accounts were taken in when reconstructing the sinking, but you don't hear the actual people. So let's take a listen to some about what Edward Smith was doing when the Titanic was sinking. Uh, this is one from a, a member of the Royal Canadian Yacht Club. Sounds like a fun group. He says, quote, about Edward Smith, He was doing everything in his power to get women in the boats and to see that they were lowered properly. I thought he was doing his duty in regard to lowering of the boats. That's the praise you get from for Smith. Robert Williams Daniel, a member of the first class, probably aware of the history involved here, gives us this much more poetic statement regarding Edward Smith, our topic today's behavior as Titanic sunk. He says, quote, Captain Smith was the biggest hero I ever saw. He stood on the bridge and he shouted through a megaphone, trying to make himself heard. After many of the women and children, but not all of them, were loaded onto the ships, 2.10 a.m., we have accounts of this order given to his men. He says, quote, to his crew, Now it's time for every man for himself. Well, boys, do your best for the women and children, and look out for yourselves. And that's the end of it. As the film Titanic shows, Edward Smith will walk to the bridge, and he'll die there. His remains will sink to the bottom of the sea. Now, for us, we view this in America as this blunder. I mean, this ship shouldn't have been doing what it was doing, and it sunk. Uh, but in the UK, and especially, Rebecca, in your city where there's a statue of Edward Smith, uh, there's a very different remembrance of him. Newspapers made him out to be a gallant hero in what he did in the aftermath of the ship. And I guess it depends on how you view the, the sinking. If you view the sinking as an act of God, then he was heroic. If you view the sinking as something that was negligent you might have a different opinion of him. But if you go to Litchfield in the UK and you go to Beacon Park, you will see a statue of our topic today, Edward Smith. On the plaque beneath it, it says as follows, Commander Edward John Smith, R.D. R.N.R., born January 27, 1850, died April 15, 1912, bequeathing to his countrymen the memory and example of a great heart and a brave life and a heroic death. Quote, be British. Now, what does that mean, be British? Well, shortly after, and this is really fascinating to me, the sinking of the ship, 
Many British newspapers will say that the last words of Edward Smith, our topic today, captain of the RMS Titanic, was, be British. That's a very jingoistic statement. That's a very kind of bold statement. But the problem is, we have literally no first-hand accounts of him ever saying that from any of the survivors. And even more than that, we have no evidence that he would ever make a statement like that in his lifetime. Yet that statue remains. So, is he a game-changer? I think he is. I mean, the Titanic will always hold a special place in, in the hearts of the Western world. Maybe it's a cautionary tale. Maybe it's a romantic tale. If nothing else, that film has given us, I think, a more personal understanding of the sinking of Titanic than ever before. Say what you want about that movie. But if you ask people today about how Titanic sunk, you have a, a world full of experts. Whereas before, maybe many people didn't even know what Titanic was. But no matter how you shake it, or how you view Edward Smith, he was at the helm. And he, like all good captains, go down with the ship. As always, next week the topic's on you. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.